for July 1st, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 261. If the day is going to be saved... podcast where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. You can probably tell by the echo chamber uh, that we're in, that you're hearing now, that we are not uh, doing this normally over Skype with our headset mics on, uh, but we are all in fact sitting in my living room, all the podcasters tonight, and there are three of us. So uh, welcome podcasters, it's wonderful to have you, and I, I, it's strange, I can barely do it with a straight face. To look you in the eye and actually speak, because you it's know. like the third time I've heard that this week. <laughs> <laughs> I can't talk. Don't look at me. Don't look at me while I'm podcasting. <laughs> Don't look at me in the eyes. Um, so uh, I'm your host Matthew Rather. This is podcast number two hundred sixty-one, and because the NSA. Is that prime? <laughs> Somebody will tell us in the comments. Is <laughs> that a prime number? The NSA has been listening in to our podcast, and we don't like that. We don't like that one bit. So um, we decided to get together live. You can divide it by three, right? No? Oh, yeah, totally. Okay. Sorry. Please continue. The math guys no. of the NSA would know. Right. If only we yeah. would let them listen to it. Can someone, uh, can someone from the NSA well actually us and do the... Uh, I see. Uh, well, Matt's got his, his thing out. So, uh... Phone. <laughs> define, define that a little more before we continue. Some of our most stalwart podcasters... Yeah, put your phones in yeah, the fridge. Right. Put your phones in the fridge like Snowden made uh, uh, all the lawyers do when he was meeting them. Huh. Yeah. Because the fridge, a metal fridge... It's a serve, Faraday cage. It's a Faraday cage. Also, it it muffles the sound if yeah. it does not manage to... Serve. And preserves meats and vegetables. <laughs> and also, it just, like, makes people think that you know a lot about, like, sp- like, like you're on top of it. Because they're like, I didn't know I, that worked. Or, you're, so, or they think you're a lunatic. Yeah. No, I feel like those MacGyver things are, are useful, right? Like, no, 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 we can do that with a rubber band, you know, two sticks of... Two cans of Easy Cheese and a, and a roll of duct tape. Like, right. Considering yeah. the amount of time we've spent talking about how a fridge cannot protect you from a nuclear explosion, I'm surprised that we're <laughs> That's so, true. so you know, gullible to believe that it could stop a cell phone. <laughs> so, so cell phones are equally powerful than nuclear blasts, as we It's know. true in a metaphorical level, and therefore, why wouldn't it be true on a, in, in the sense of physical? Exactly. In physical. a way. A cell phone is as, po- is as powerful as a nuclear And we blast. know what you always say about in a way. Well, it's not me, actually. No one's going to jump out and correct me. Uh, wait, wait, Matt. You're wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got Fenzel in your suitcase or something? In my uh, soul. <laughs> because uh, stalwart podcaster Peter Fenzel is on an overthinking it retreat uh, deep in the wilds of Appalachia. Uh, this week. How do you pronounce it? Appalachia. That sounds about right. I live there. No one knows. <laughs> Ape, Appalachia. Yeah, I think that's just, that's where the apes it's, it's like ap- distill moonshine whiskey. It's Appalachia. <laughs> Preferred pronunciation. And if there were more than one, the plural would be Appalachia. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, stalwart uh, podcaster Peter Fenzel is not with us, and stalwart podcaster Mark Lee um, is uh, is in in Europe. Um, 
liaising with the Illuminati who are considering making a major investment in overthinkingit.com. But um, fortunately, uh, two less frequently heard on this podcast, Overthinkers, have made the trip all the way to the bleeding edge of America, to the left coast, to my hometown of Los Angeles, California, where we are sitting in my living room and recording this now. And man, it was a scorcher today. And I made them turn the air conditioning off so that it wouldn't have that low-level background buzz for the whole podcast. As scabs for the podcast, we don't have the right to air conditioning. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, Fenzel and, and, and Lee are unionized. But, uh, but I brought in some podcasting scabs. So uh, here, here they are. Um, Matt Belinky and Josh McNeil. Gentlemen, thank you for flying all the way across the country just to appear on a podcast. That's true. If only there was some way that we could have done it without leaving our homes, but... <laughs> you just can't trust anyone these days. No. So, uh, we, we've been um, reliving the glory days of college, sort of to, to celebrate my birthday, and also as a sort of annual reunion of good, good college pals. Um, and we've been playing uh, we've been playing a game together, a hypothetical game that has an indelicate name. Uh, and I'm not going to say the indelicate name on the podcast because we try to keep the podcast PG thirteen. Quidditch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we try to keep it PG thirteen. Um, so I'm going to call it Mary Spoon or Punch in the Face. No, Smooch. Let's say Smooch. Mary Smooch or Punch in the Face. And we've been doing this all uh, all weekend because apparently we are thirteen year old girls. I think that's mm. been obvious to anyone who's listened to the podcast before. Right. So uh, let's uh, let's pick a category, and I think we're going to go with Disney characters okay. this time. So uh, who do you marry? Who do you spoon? And who do you punch in the face? Uh, Matt Belinky, over to you. Right. Let's, let's drink because it's not Fenzel. I, I feel like I should preface this by saying that a lot of our answers are not strictly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, feminist, uh, you know. You say gender normative. Yeah, exactly, right. Um, so, so you know, trying, trying to keep the show uh, to a PG-13 level, uh, let me see. I'm going to go, and, and without stealing any of your answers, which I may have heard before, um... Let me see. Oh, by the way, and we also need to prep. There's so many disclaimers that we need to get out in the open before we can even broach this topic. Obviously, Disney heroines have a tendency to be, uh, what's the word, a 15. So let's assume that that they're all magically aged to, not even 18, because even that's a little bit creepy. But let's say they're all, was 23. They've all gotten college educations. They're all... I mean, in real time, many of them are in their late 40s at this point. I, well, we would add another wrinkle to this if you if you had them age More from the one. year. I suppose that's a good point. Um, wow, that's okay. Here we go. Uh, so I am. I'm, I'm going to go with. Uh, I'm going to steal Matt's actually, even though I said I wouldn't. I'm going I'm to spoon with uh, Ursula, the sea witch, because <laughs> that was in mine. I'm pretty sure it was. Because sure here's the thing: no, she is. Well, never mind. If you want to think about like who is the coziest of all the of all the the Disney characters, she's squishy t- to the extreme, right? And also that like if you think about like arms, she's got she's got more. You want you want Thingamabob? She's got twenty. Um, and so it's like if you're looking for somebody who's gonna gonna give you a a, a, a superhuman cuddling experience, I think she would definitely uh, be the one. 
Uh, let me see. No, Mary, Mary is tricky because like a lot of these people, it's not, they're not just sort of paraphrase the final episode of Buffy. They're not done. They're cookie dough at this point. And you're not really sure what they're going to be like when they have responsibility and they have mortgages to pay and they have to argue over like who gets the car that day. And the right to vote. Right, right. That kind of stuff. Um, I think I'm going to go with Jasmine just because she's going to come into some money. <laughs> and a lot of them aren't. Like, you got to figure that. Um, because here's the thing, like, Most you know, coming to money through marriage. Yeah. But it's like, like if I'm going to marry them, then they, you know, it's like, if you marry Ariel, she's not a princess in that reality because like I've, unless like her dad gives me a bunch of sea cells that I can sell on eBay. By the seashore. Yes. I can't, I can't even pronounce seashell without even adding additional complexity to it. So I'm going to go with, with Jasmine because she has all the wealth of Arabia, uh, and it, it, she's from an era where there w- there would be a large dowry. Pet tiger, um, pet tiger is a bonus. I guess, like I could sell the pet tiger for. Oh, you mean like just like having the pet tiger as a tiger? I'm, I'm thinking. I'm really just thinking of, of cashing that one out pretty quickly. You're um, digging pretty <laughs> hardcore. I is that not okay? Is that wrong? Uh, right. So Ursula, Jasmine, and then oh yeah, no, I got I got to kill one off. And to no, be no, no, punch in the face. Oh, sorry punch in the face and to be fair I feel like it does need to be need to be a female right because it's like usually when you play this game it's people all the same sex and you can't because like I can't punch Gaston in the face that would make it too easy though if you guys want to pick that you, you can pick it I just won't respect you we're not picking him to punch in the face or the oh interesting <laughs> no one spoons like Gaston <laughs> yeah um I mean like I, this is low hanging fruit, but like, I'm gonna just go with Corella Deville, you know. And like, I wish, I wish that like I could come up with a complicated explanation of like why I really want to punch Ariel in the face for her own good. But Corella Deville is like she's she needs a punch in the face, and I also think that like what happens to her at the end of the the I don't like the Disney movies where there is violent death depicted on screen whether it be the the violent stabbing death of Ursula or uh the the Bill Sykes character getting run over by a subway and Oliver and company um you know I like I like it when the when the villain gets their comeuppance in a way that's not uh, gruesomely fatal and if you if you spoiler alert for 101 Dalmatians uh Cruella DeVille dies in a violent uh car crash you know rolls down a cliff smeared all over the place it's like you know they're they're gonna be they're gonna be burying her in a in a in a, a biscuit tin I was trying to come up with something vaguely British <laughs> uh they have biscuits in, in England right yes I don't know what they are they're muffins of some <laughs> right um so yeah I'm just gonna I'm gonna punch her in the face uh, and then and then have her have her not die in the violent rack so she can come back for 102 Dalmatians, which I realize is just I'm, I'm mixing Dalmatian verses, you know, like the 102 Dalmatian with Glenn Close is sort of on Earth too, uh, and not the animated universe. So yeah, that's I, I forgot what all my answers were, but uh, that's what I'm sticking to. I like uh, I mean I I don't know I felt bad for Cruella Deville in the live action 101 Dalmatians and that has got to be a failure on the part of the filmmakers. Um, well, it's like Glenn Close is too good an actress and she brings too much humanity dignity right? to the role of Cruella DeVille that she makes you feel for Cruella DeVille. And what you need is like, you know, somebody, somebody who's more wooden. Yeah. You why, need- did, why did in the devil wears Prada, they not do a callback to that and have her wear like Dalmatian coats at some point. Cause it's mm-hmm. the same character, right? Sort of. Yeah. Right. Um, Okay, that's Josh McNeil. Over to you, Josh. 
Who are you gonna Who are you gonna marry? Who are you gonna spoon? And who are you going to punch in the face? I am gonna marry the genie from Aladdin. Oh, mm. oh man, did you steal mine? <laughs> oh, uh, wow. endless novelty. Um, you know, you want the Nile? Uh, I, I do, in fact, want the Nile. I want uh, I want access to to flying uh, floor coverings. I want uh, you know. Trips to Bermuda. That's actually. I but that are you assu- to Bermuda is uh, Merlin. Are you assuming that the now. genie has been freed and that the genie doesn't have a job anymore? Is no, a free I'm agent. thinking I could stay in the lamp. The lamp seems pretty nice. So, like, like your first wish will be to marry the genie, and you just won't ever use your other two wishes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like I feel like with the exchange of rings, the like three wish thing is out. So you're, you're like it's, a, it's a new contract that you're making. It's it, yeah. But like usually they make it pretty clear that you can't wish for infinite wishes or marry the genie and expect the genie then to like. When has that ever been made clear? That in that, what telling of Aladdin has, has there someone been like? You know what? I could the marry the genie. Yeah, because the genie obviously can voluntarily use magic, just like doesn't want to. Because like you know, to, to paraphrase the Joker, if you're good at something, never do it for free. Right. That's actually a quote, not a paraphrase. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm going to spoon Goofy from that skiing um, film, like oh, early yeah. on, where he's in bed one. and like kind of the way he like slides into bed, it slides out of bed to ski and uh, and, and learn various winter sports. Okay. I just feel like it'd be cozy. <laughs> and uh, and goofy. that. What kind of an is, is Goofy a dog? Goofy is Goofy, man. Goofy, but. It's unclear because Goofy also has a dog, which has some weird sort of. Well, Goofy like, could be an alpha dog. It's <laughs> a good point. That's that explains the attraction, I think. Okay. Uh, and, and punch in the face. Uh, I'm going to go with Steamboat Willie. Um, just, okay. just, just the like. Just. Punch him right in the whistling face. <laughs> in the in his cheery <laughs> whistling. He's bopping up and down on his steamboat. And I was like, mm. Although, like, you, as, as somebody who, who uh, works in the realm of, like, progressive environmental policies, you have to appreciate the use of the steamboat, which is a renewable, or I guess it's not, where, where does the steam come from? Coal. So that's <laughs> because I was like, steam is clean. It's not smoke or anything. No, that was like the birth of like it's the really carbon-based like, revolution. I don't, in I don't understand anything about the world. No. So it should really just be a smoke boat. Yeah, yeah, that's, right. that's yeah. They're not called steam stacks on on the steamboat. That's true. <laughs> All right, I guess that uh, it comes down to me. Um, I, I, okay, so I'm going to spoon with the genie. I, I've moved him in in uh, positions. In fact, in you honor home wrecker. <laughs> after Josh has married the genie, Are you lamp wrecker. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to spoon with him because uh, uh, yeah. Um, because what? Just blue and squishy. Well, he likes novelty. Josh Josh called that out specifically. Uh-huh. And, you know, I think that he would not be a good steady companion. To whom to, uh, you know, one could pledge one's life, but, you know, would be a great, uh, great, you know, I don't know, weekend in Vegas or something. Here, right here's there. the thing. You get it better say, than me. He's like, the exits are here, 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 here. <laughs> when, I say, when, you, when you say spoon, am I supposed to imagine spooning or is spooning being used in this case as a euphemism? Spooning is being spooning used. Spooning is a euphemism to begin with. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, 
to me, well, then I might want to change the Ursula thing. Because to me, spooning is a peaceful, soothing activity. And the genie is, is the opposite, is the worst person to spoon with. No, no, the reason we're saying spoon is so as not to say the vulgar name of this, no, of this I was, game. No, I was visualizing or, you and the genie in like a tender, are you the big spoon or the little spoon? <laughs> I don't know. He was a pretty burly genie. I think he's gonna. I he think also he, make lots of copies of himself. You could be both. <laughs> yeah, you could be in the middle of a genie sandwich. <laughs> wow! Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> uh, so yes, I, I'm going to spoon with the genie. I'm going to marry. Um, you know, actually, I think I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick all three. Uh, I'm going to pick all in honor of uh, Prop 8 no longer being uh, enforceable in California. I'm going to to go uh, all three marriages that this state would only grant, you know, as recently as this week. So um, the genie and uh, uh, yeah, for Mary, I want um, for Mary, you know, I think I want either Chip or Dale Oh, I thought you meant Chip the underage cup for Beauty and the Beast, and I was going to be like, "It's wrong at so many levels." <laughs> no, I want, I want a, uh, I, I want because they are good, um, they are good uh, planners. You know what I mean? They're good. I, I have a feeling that they, you know, they store up nuts for the winter. They, you know, live in a tree, don't they? And uh, they also have a sense of humor, which I think is important for a long-term relationship for sustaining a, uh, you know, partnership over a long period of time. So I feel like personality-wise, either Chip or Dale, you know, I'm not particular. Do, do uh, That's two homes you've wrecked. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like they're like a match set. I feel like I'd almost let you pick them both. Chip and Dale are, are brothers, aren't they? They're not a couple like Bert and Ernie are, are they? We don't know if they're... Are they? Is that canonical, or are we just assuming... Do we know anything about how chipmunks live together? Like, their social structure? How, the, how they live together as chipmunk and chipmunk? <laughs> I don't think we know anything, but that shouldn't stop us from talking about it. You know what? Chip and Dale is a union, but is a sacred union between one chipmunk and one chipmunk. Yeah. If, we, if we're allowed to bring in the Disney afternoon, I really think Gidget from Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers is, is quite the catch. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty awesome. She's handy, right? In addition to, to looking good in coveralls. <laughs> Jumpsuit? Yeah, something like that. But the, uh, well, no, Chip and Dale are not just in the Disney afternoon. I mean, they're from the old Disney animated shorts. I know, but now I'm expanding the realm of possibilities here. Merry Melodies. Was Disney Merry Melodies or Silly Symphonies? Merry Melodies, I think, right? Was the Disney one? Someone's going to well actually I thought that was like Looney Tunes. And then Disney was Silly Symphonies? I, I never, I'm very partial to Looney Tunes. I have like strong brand loyalty uh, like the same way that like I won't eat it eat Wendy's because I don't like square hamburgers and that's that strikes me as wrong. Uh, that like I won't I won't watch like a Disney animated short if I could like you know be be YouTubing a Roadrunner cartoon. Is your antipathy toward the square hamburger about the square? Like, would you eat a triangle hamburger, or is it all it just has to be you know round? Yeah, like I feel like the square hamburger smacks of conformity. It smacks of like you know 1984 to me. They're like all hamburgers come out because like square is like a very efficient shape. And um um to me it's like the fact that we made round hamburgers at McDonald's. At least they're they're trying to make them user friendly, they're rounding off all the sharp edges. Whereas triangle would be jaunty in a way. Triangle would be just like fun. Yeah. 
Yeah. It also depends on the type of triangle. The, uh, have you heard, actually, the, the certain fast food chains have hired uh, artisans to <laughs> deliberately create mass-produced food that looks like it was handmade? So soon you will be able to get, like, an Egg McMuffin that's not a perfect circle? Yeah. So, uh, the, so that the, the lack of perfection in the food becomes, like, a plus. You'd be like, oh, this cheese is all lopsided. It's like, yeah, that's because it's artisanal. And yes. you'd be like, oh. I don't believe that that's how you pronounce that. We I, know that's not. I believe <laughs> that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> but pushing, pushing right along. And I want to punch in the face um, Iago because he just has an annoying voice. The, yeah. the parrot? The Gilbert Godfrey Really? You're, you're punching him in the whole body because, like, your face relevance <laughs> to his... But keep in mind that, like, he has a beak on his face, so, like, you probably want to punch him in the back of the head. Good point. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, that would hurt. I would probably cut my hand. So I actually... So we want to rabbit punch Iago. <laughs> I, this, is, this is the worst. This is, and by the way, I am... I don't know if I'm proud or disappointed in this that none of us grabbed the low-hanging fruit that is Jessica Rabbit. That like you know would that be would that be too simple or did none of us did that just not occur to us until now? I uh, mean the the men with her tended to die. I, she was a yeah I mean she was a femme fatale with an emphasis on the fatale. Yeah, she's she's not bad. She's just drawn that way. <laughs> um, so I actually I texted Pete Fenzel as we were beginning to record this uh, high atop. Um, hi, uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail or Appalachian. No, let's not go into it. Continue. <laughs> the Appalachian <laughs> Trail. Uh, and he says he's going to, uh, he's going to marry uh, Miss Bianca from The Rescuers. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, um, he's going to spoon. Oh, he, see, he went Disney Afternoon. He's going to spoon with Gadget from The Rescue Rangers. That's what I said. Yep. And he is going to punch in the face the Aristocats. All of them? <laughs> he says, uh, cats have no business inheriting property. <laughs> and uh, He's not wrong. In his choice between uh, to, to spoon Gadget but marry Miss Bianca, he says, engineering is sexy, but diplomacy builds relationships. Yeah. <laughs> Bravo, sir. Yeah. Although, if, if we're moving to the Disney afternoon, I'm going to, for obvious reasons, change my spoon to any of the gummy bears. As long as they're allowed to bring some of, that, some of the gummy bear juice into the equation. <laughs> <laughs> don't you want to spoon Baloo? Because don't you think his, his soft bear fur... Will... No, that's what I thought you meant. Actually spoon. Like, it's the end of a hard day. And I just it, I, the subway got delayed, and like there's nothing in the fridge. I just need to be held for a minute. Then it's blue. But if we're using spoon, I'm doing air quotes as big as I possibly can. Uh, then it's definitely. I, I don't remember the name of any of the gummy bears, but but I'll just. I really just want the gummy bear juice for the spooning. <laughs> I assume they were like red, <laughs> yellow. Yeah. There's a pink one that's probably underage. I'm not that. No. <laughs> and not the old one. There's like one really old one. So this is, right, this is your window into our, you know, into our single malt scotch fueled uh, lost weekend together, partially in celebration of my recent birthday. Um, so uh, down, to, down to business, the business of the podcast. <laughs> This is um, the week of the 4th of July. Happy 4th, if you're listening to this uh, on the 4th. Happy impending 4th. <laughs> uh, 
I'm proud to be an American, for at least I know I'm free. Do you? No. I think that's coming to question. I'm not, yeah, I'm not free Did from... Like not, I'm not free from, from electronic surveillance. Uh, but, uh... So every every Fourth of July, it's always fun to return to the classics. And on overthinking it, we have two classics uh, that I would like to point you to um, as regards uh, American Independence Day. One is a post by Pete Fenzel, our very own Pete Fenzel, um, and if he, uh, you know, and w- he wrote it before he met Miss Bianca from. Uh, <laughs> And he uh, he wrote it, and it's called Ten Great Things About America That I Learned from Independence Day. And we're going to post a link to it uh, later on in the week. But you can get a uh, you can get a head start on your celebration of the holiday by uh, just googling for that and reading that article. It'll make you feel patriotic in a pop cultural way. And the other thing is, uh, please check out and uh, buy for a dollar ninety nine if you haven't yet. Our overview, our alternative commentary on the film, the classic film, Independence Day, starring uh, Randy Quaid and Jeff Goldblum uh, as a pair of, you know, as as a father and son who are, no, no, who is, who is Jeff Goldblum's father in that? Wait, who's the, the, the old uh, Jewish guy, comic relief guy? Comic, yeah, who is I that? I don't know. He's, um, to the Google mobile. <laughs> He's that guy who is Jeff Goldblum's dad in Independence Day. <laughs> is is it um, Judd Hirsch? Oh, yeah, that uh, sounds realistic. That sounds like it could be. Uh, so we recorded a few years ago an alternative commentary on this film, and it's, it's definitely worth a listen and worth a download if you haven't. And you will be, uh, of course, supporting Overthinking It uh, by that. You can check the Twitter feed for some promotional codes, which may materialize over the next couple days, because we love America and want to give you a discount on uh, enjoying Independence Day, uh, featuring our um, alternative commentary to it. So, uh, yes, those are the two sponsor messages. Happy Independence Day. Hope you have the day off from work. And if you are a part of our international audience, um, hi. Yeah. Enjoy Thursday. See if you can find that old fireworks screensaver, and you will know what it's like to be an American today. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh... We were, we were thinking that we might stop and take stock of some of the films that uh, had come out and see if we could spot here at, at sort of the midpoint. Well, not really. Yeah, no, the midpoint, beginning of July, right? Like, I feel like yeah. like Memorial Day, 4th of July, and Labor Day are sort of signposts, are sort of tent poles, if you will, yeah. of the tent pole pictures, right, along the, the summer movie season. And we were... Um, we were talking about some things that that this crop of films seems to have in common. Matt, do you want to tee us off and just uh, get us into the conversation a little bit? Well, I mean, here's what's very interesting is that when a movie comes out, it's probably been in production for minimum of like two years. You know, a big summer blockbuster. They don't happen overnight. Um, maybe even as much as like three years. The script could have been kicking around much longer than that. So it's certainly... Doesn't represent you know something that 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 just you know got brainstormed like the week before. It doesn't have the immediacy that TV can to respond to sort of like changing national moods and everything. That being said, it is interesting, and and I do I have a, a lot of respect for Hollywood screenwriters and even Hollywood screenwriters that are working within the very sort of regimented and constrained world of blockbuster screenwriting, you know, where, where everything, where there's like a supercomputer telling them when there needs to be a car chase and when there, there needs to be a kiss. Um, 
And I, I, I do think that you look at the set of blockbusters of a given year, and there are themes that come out. There are patterns, uh, and especially in terms of like you know who the bad guy is, what they're fighting. Because one thing that we that we talked about going into this is that blockbusters they, they do tend to feature sort of a group of rugged outsiders or individualists who sort of have to come in and save the day and and i mean the biggest cliche is like you know in a world where blankety blank only one man can and that's like the ultimate blockbuster thing and it is it is true that like whatever the threat it usually is the the established structure is not going to be enough uh, that like you need to add an outside component. You need to, to add something unconventional or do things in a new way. Um, but I think what's interesting looking at this year is the idea of, of what they're fighting, what the threat is. So Josh, I mean, do you want to do you want to go into? Because I think you were the one who sort of noticed the pattern. Sure. Well, to sort of follow up on that. Like I think that structure of the the only one man comes out of the Western, right? Where they, they that was an era without systems. It was, it was a time where, in a, in a small town, the legal system was, in fact, one man. Um, and that became, you know, that was actually when and where they started making movies and, and was sort of the focus yeah. of a lot of the early ones. And that's, like, really the story we've come to, to expect. Although, I mean, you, you could also argue, like, you know, you go back to, like, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And, like, it t- they tend to be structures. Even when people are working within the system, it takes, like, a, a great... A great thinker, you know, somebody, somebody who is who is a, a, a genius or a prodigy, or uh, for lack of a better word, a hero, that uh, then can sort of like mobilize it is the magic sauce that makes these things work. That that there are very few sort of classic inspiring tales about people that are just cogs in a machine, right? Right. Which is sort of an interesting, from a political perspective, sort of a very conservative viewpoint, right? That that it's about the individual more than the system. Um, the common complaint amongst the environmentalists I work with, uh, and by that I mean me, uh, is that the, the villain of Ghostbusters was the EPA. And that, that to me has always really been a problem because the EPA are like actual heroes doing actual work, but it's much more easy to sort of villainize a system like that than it is to, to you know, uh, celebrate it. So in this, uh, in this summer, what we've seen and what we're sort of going to continue to see, this conversation started around the movie Pacific Rim, uh, was the idea that government and the systems that are in place have failed. And it's, it's that absolute failure uh, that sort of creates the situation that the one man or the team is going to solve. Uh, and so looking at Pacific Rim, like, we have the system, we have, you know, billions of dollars of defense spending and all of this sort of thing, but apparently... Um, you know, it's some old robot jockeys with their old beat-up robot who are going to come in and actually save the day in sort of a Armageddon-style roughneck way. Uh, likewise, in Iron Man, you've got the entire sort of military system that becomes the villain. Um, you know, it is the defense industrial complex that is, in fact, the villain of both both the first and third Iron Mans, really. Um, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the the savior and the and the thing that like brings it all to completion is uh, flying unmanned robots or drones, um, which yeah. is sort of was an interesting end to that film, given the yeah. fact that that's been in the news so much of late. Right. I mean, actually, very similar uh, themes in Star Trek and Darkness, in that the bad guys turn out to be the people in the defense industry. 
Uh, I mean, for all intents and purposes, in Iron Man 3, the bad guys are, you know, a, a consortium of, like, military vet- veterans and military contractors. Uh, same deal on Star Trek Into Darkness, right? It's the people that work for the Federation that need to be stopped uh, because they are they are uh, out of control. They, they don't respect the democratic process. Uh, that, you know, that in Star Trek Into Darkness, they're not out for profit. It's not quite that craven. But it's the idea that, that these people are going to get us into a war because they know best. Uh, and that to them, you know, they're a hammer and everything looks like a nail. Um, and then, let me see, you get into this month. So, and, I mean, I think actually Fast and the Furious 6 is an interesting one there. Did we decide it's officially Furious 6? Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah. The canonical title of that right. film is, is Furious 6. If you are, as we are, connoisseurs of the Fast and Furious yeah. franchise. Because who is, who is the villain in that? He is somebody who has a military background. Sure. He's somebody who came from the army, and then in a in a similar way to Iron Man 3, maybe not so much Star Trek Into Darkness, the the traditional sort of law enforcement and military is powerless to stop him, right? Like, The Rock has tried to take him out using the police, using Interpol, and they've been unable to. And so what do they have to do? They have to, in the case of Iron Man 3, you go to Iron Man, who was a private citizen, um, you know, the president can't take down the Mandarin. It's Iron Man has to issue this challenge through the press and then single-handedly go and get the guy. And then in Fast and the Furious 6, literally they, they have to find these wanted criminals and offer them a pardon because they, they're basically admitting we do not have the skills to bring down this guy that we have trained. We need, we need the, the bad guys, the cowboys to do it for us. Which is sort of, um, you know, flying out here, you have to these days buy your magazine at the airport that you're going to read during takeoff and landing because for some reason a Kindle will destroy a plane. Um, so picked up uh, Bloomberg Businessweek, which, which is talking about um, Booz Allen Hamilton and the fact that in right now in, in the sort of spy industry in America, like... Um, I believe it's a majority of the money goes to these private contractors. And the, the CIA and such are actually saying, we don't have the skills to do this. We need to contract it. And so the, the movies are sort of paralleling the reality there as more and more of the defense industry is privatized um, and sort of highlighting the dangers of that, which is you know, strangely socially conscious of Hollywood. Yeah. Right. I, mean, I want to I pick this apart a little more because I think there are two – I think there are two trends – and one, one has to do with the failure of institutions or a belief that sort of large institutions are inherently corrupt or will inevitably become corrupt. And the other has to do with what the solution is to, to the problem of the movie, right? And I think that that's less, less insidious, perhaps, right? Because it's, it's dramatic storytelling and you kind of need to focalize the um, you need to focalize the uh, the action through one character or one or two characters or a small number of characters rather than rather than being novelistic or Dickensian, right? Like, um, which which explains World War Z. Yeah, well, right, and that's I mean that's the thing I was I was talking about. Like, it's it, it's it's okay to say for a Hollywood for a summer movie that Brad Pitt is the answer to our problems because you can look at Brad Pitt. You know, and Brad Pitt can do the sort of things that I mean, you know, I'd spoon that guy, right? Like, right. Uh, although I would say World War Z is the except, perhaps to the detriment of the movie, is the exception to this idea that our institutions have failed us and only 
extraordinary uh, individuals rising above those institutions can succeed. Because although Brad Pitt does single-handedly save humanity, he does so within the... He's doing his job. And that no institution fails in that movie. That, like, the military takes care of people. It puts them in a refugee camp, which is totally safe. He goes off on this mission for the UN. The military helps him out. They help him uh, escape from uh, Jerusalem when that city falls. He meets up with the World Health Organization. Once they, uh, they understand his credentials and they talk to his supervisor, they're just like, <laughs> what do you need? So they're like, yes. In a way, it's a movie about, like, um, single heroism. But you can imagine another kind of movie where, like, his Craven supervisor is sort of like you know you fall back you know defending our base is the only thing the the human race has been lost and he's like you know what I don't believe that I'm gonna keep pursuing this lead because like I'm not giving up on these people um, like that kind of a movie like which is more like 2012 which is about how these like institutions are doing the wrong thing and it takes people sort of like not letting go of their humanity and not being soulless cogs in the machine. Sure, but when when when. When the UN saves the day in in World War Z, in the film World War Z, right, the UN is, for all intents and purposes, Brad Pitt, right? It's not like, it's not like there's a bunch of people deliberatively sitting around a table, uh, you know, like, because when there is an ass to be kicked, right, there's only room on that ass for one foot, is my point, yeah, I guess. Yeah, depends on the But I, I do think, like, <laughs> right, I, I agree with you that Brad Pitt is the UN, but contrast that to something like in 2012, which is a very similar movie, very similar structure, the guy who saves the world is the limo driver. Go back to Independence Day, the guy who saves the world is the crop duster who everyone thinks is crazy. Um, and it's sort of like, it's the difference between some outsider who everybody wrote off, who turns out to be the guy who has to rise to the challenge, and then, like, the guy who's the best at his job doing his job job with you know with the help and assistance of his co-workers sure who you know it's it's the difference between like you know the men in black save the world because like that's what they do they're well trained and then like you know like like what's what's a what's another movie where like ragtag bunch of uh, of individuals save the world in an unlikely way most of the movies in the 80s Right, or even like the Ghostbusters, right? Like the Ghostbusters, they're they're fired from the university. Everyone thinks they're crazy, and they develop this technology. And it turns out, like they, you know, they're the only ones who can help. And at the very end, uh, they're they're rescued from jail, picked out, and the mayor is like, "Okay, boys, what do you need from me?" You know, there was a there was a course, like a special course, offered a couple times. Um, while we were in college, taught by Richard Broadhead, who is now president of Duke University, uh, called like something like the prophetic tradition in American literature. And and his point was that there's this strong strain in American literature of the person who comes out and seems like uh, seems like sent or compelled somehow to bear witness to this this private truth that that people don't want to acknowledge and uh you know that this is something in our this is something in our national dna somehow that like uh uh i you know i don't know one one lone guy right like really knows the answer and is trying to tell us but isn't you know isn't listened to and the mainstream just just sort of shuns yeah. shuns him and there's something there's something sort of prophetic right there's something like old testament biblical about that that uh uh no prophet is welcome right. in his own land right so right in, in a way you could break all I mean not all blockbusters because something like you know Avatar Titanic you know they, they fall outside the, the traditional pattern where there is a threat there's a bad guy who's trying to take over the world or blow something up and you know somebody's got to stop him and you could break them down into either 
the institutions work and the institutions are what beats him or the institutions fail and somebody from outside the system has to step in with special skills um, and and save the day. Um, you know, and, and then there are movies that bridge the gap because I was thinking of The Avengers hmm. where it's that, is this a movie about how S.H.I.E.L.D. is this extremely well-funded secret government agency and it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It, it rises to the end. The helicarrier goes in. Nick Fury puts together a team to, to save the day. Or is it a story about how Nick Fury needs to put together a team of outsiders because he knows that the the institution isn't going to work. And the only... So, you know, he sort of, like, manages to square the circle. And he comes up with this institutional way to create a band of outsiders and empower them to save the day. I think he just, like, if there's a Hulk out there, you've got to recruit him one way or the other. Yeah. Um, and it, it'll be interesting to see what Whedon does with the S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show on that score. For the World War Z thing, I, I think... Sort of the answer to this question would have been to um, uh, I'm blanking on the guy's name, curly hair. Uh, he's in a bunch of Seth Rogen movies. Um, Seth Rogen. <laughs> <laughs> Jason Jason Siegel. It's not yeah. Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill. Okay. Uh, if you ever saw Moneyball by Aaron Sorkin, which is Brad Pitt with Jonah Hill as like the guy who crunches the numbers for Brad Pitt. Like, you kind of want to see that character in World War Z, like the UN intern who actually, like, figures out how to get food from point A to point B at the right moment in time. Sure. Like, when we talked about World War Z, we talked about the the Oliver Platt character, right? Like, doing the logistics and actually, in his case, like, doing the kind of the Solomonic task of, you know, cutting particular babies in half, uh, which he is vilified for, but is... You know, truly necessary if we are to survive. You mean the, 2012, right? 2012. Because if say? he also did that in World War Z, that would be amazing. Yeah, like, yeah. What yeah. a great typecast role to have. No, we, yeah. When we were on the World War Z podcast, we talked about 2012, and we talked about about Oliver Platt in that in that film. Yeah. Anyway, so um, the yeah, and the the I mean, even I don't know, even like things like uh, White House Down, right, and. Uh, the G.I. Joe movie and Olympus Has Fallen is, is the, 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 the sense that these institutions are not robust somehow, right? That they are vulnerable to, to violent attack. But I think, that that's a, I think that that's a trope of their being sort of uh, unreliable in, in some kind of larger sense. Yeah. And I mean, maybe we're overly simplifying things in terms of, like, either the institution works or it doesn't, because all those movies are probably, you know, at first the institution doesn't work, but then it picks itself off the mat and works. That the G.I. Joe, the the new G.I. Joe movie, is at first the G.I. Joes are soundly wiped out and framed for atrocities. Um, and you know the 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 president is uh, taken over by uh, I believe it's Mystique uh, takes over his role. Um, but then, like, it is a group of the G.I. Joes that saved the day. It's not some, you know, some band of rejects that managed to accomplish it. And the same thing with White... I, I did not see White House Down, but I believe that Channing Tatum is a Secret Service agent. He's not just, like... Like, as opposed to Die Hard, right? That, like, John McClane is not, like, the guy that you send in to deal with, like, terrorist attacks. He's not on the SWAT team. He's like, yeah, he's a cop, but he's basically a regular guy, right? And that's the fantasy. Like, the FBI is like, we're going to handle this this terrorist. You know, we're going to take back this building. And the FBI gets wiped out. 
because they are they are complacent and overconfident and they don't actually have the skills. And it's the regular guy who's outside the system and that the the people inside the system don't don't like him and, and maybe would prefer that you know he be he not be the one. So I, I do think that there's a difference between something something like White House Down, assuming that Channing Tatum is indeed like the lone Secret Service agent and not like a tourist, right? I think I think those are very different movies. Even though structurally it could be the same movie, if Channing Tatum is like a Marine recently returned from Iraq, he's on a tour of the White House, and oh my God, all the Secret Service agents are dead, so now he has to step in and do something that's not his job. Versus all the Secret Service agents are dead except for one. So that like they haven't failed yet, right? They're two sort. Of, they're two related but distinct fantasies. One is that the world is extraordinarily complex, but there is a cast of people, right, who are well trained and who got this, right? And and the other one is the world is not that complex, right? That that a cab driver or a tourist or a whoever can actually rise yeah. to to whatever. To whatever occasion, or, but they, or to be more cynical, it's it's the idea that like the people whose responsibility is to save the day are worthless, right. and that they are not going to be able to do it, and that if the day is going to be saved, it's going to be like from like Joe Schmo, who happens to be like a good man in the right place at the right time, who will do like what the institutions do do not have the ability or the will to do. Yeah, I mean, and that kind of shades into that shades into sort of cowboy stuff, right? Yeah. And like we've talked on this podcast and on TFT about like the kind of the 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 cowboy trope and the sort of the the survival of the community resting on the shoulders of someone who is willing to do to do to get his hands dirty a little bit. You know what I mean? To do things mm-hmm. um uh to do things, the doing of which necessarily exclude him from being a member of the right. community. And, and let, let's be clear, when you're talking about that, you kind of are lumping in most superhero movies, right? Like, that's that's the Batman series, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, he's, like, the Gotham City police are not getting the job done. Here's a guy, he doesn't work with the official, or, you know, he has a very loose, unofficial relationship with the official structure through uh, Commissioner Gordon. Um, but like it, it, t- it takes a cowboy like that because either the police don't have the ability or the will to get the job done, um, and then you could imagine like another another you know um, series about like you know uh, it's like a buddy cop movie about like these two you know like a lethal weapon type thing where like these two are going to clean up the mean streets of Gotham because like they're different kinds of cops, uh, you know with the, I guess that's bad boys right. Sure. That like yeah, they're like they're maybe a little bit rogue and they're a little bit unconventional, but they're definitely cops and they're definitely like working. It's their job to do this. Yeah, but it shades. I mean, there's a continuum, and you you slide down it a little bit into like the shield, right? Those guys are cops and they're very well trained, and yet they're sort of part of the problem, right? Yeah, or or I mean, I, I think what the shield does when it was at its best is sort of do you like it when. Vic Mackey plays by the rules or do you want him to just like shoot the child rapist in the head because like somebody needs to do it and it's good that there's a guy who a cowboy who's willing to step outside the law because like the the law is never going to get that guy you know if if, if they have to play by the rules sure um, well, I mean sort of in in a in an episode of life imitating art Snowden yeah yeah, yeah saw something that he thought was wrong and, like, broke a whole lot of laws in order to sort of, like, tell the world about it. That's sort of... It's, like, a bit of the prophetic tradition, but it's also something that we celebrate in films all the time, is sort of the person who 
breaks the rules to to do what's right. And he I, played by his own rules. He did. I mean, you could you can certainly there are many typewriters in this town already already working on the screenplay. Right. Um, they don't type screenplays on typewriters anymore. I'm just saying. You know, I don't know when you, last you were in Los Angeles, but they've upgraded most of the typewriter factories at the studios. Uh, that's that's really because you look around this town and you'd think, man, they barely got electricity. <laughs> uh, the but it's it's he's sort of it's interesting also the way the news is covering him because they the news covered the fact that that like Americans were being spied on for, for about forty eight hours. They're covering the like Snowden chase, like it's you know uh, like it's a white van on a freeway or a, a right. white Ford Bronco on a freeway, like and I and. You get the impression that some of them are kind of rooting for him. Like, I'd, I'd love to see Polio, like, where America is. Are we, is America rooting for this guy to, like, get away with that? Or, you know, how does that movie end if, it's, if someone's writing it right well, now? Well, I mean, get away with it even. I think, like, that, that choice of words, not, not that it was intentional on your part, but sort of get away with it makes it seem like it was a, like a heist and not a, a sort of considered active of conscience, right? Like, yeah. you know, I mean, if I've learned anything from the heist movies I've seen in the last 10 years, those are considered acts of conscience. Yeah, it's true. Right. <laughs> like it is good that, that, uh, George Clooney robs, um, Oh, who was that it? guy? That guy. I, Andy yeah. Garcia. There it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, right. It's good. Right. It's yeah. good that, um, you know, Jesse Eisenberg, Rob something. Yeah, let's not. Yeah, Rob. No one saw some some people. It's interesting. I was just With looking at magic. <laughs> I was just looking at the upcoming movies, and you see these these same things are going to be echoed all summer. That's Despicable Me Two coming out very soon. I'm very excited for it. But this is a movie about the world is being threatened, and they feel like the good guys cannot do it, and so they recruit. Uh, Steve Carell's character, Gru, who is a reformed supervillain. He was a supervillain in the first movie. Presumably he's sort of retired or gone straight now that he's he's sort of been, uh, his heart has been thawed, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas style, by the cute little kids. And so that, like, you know, if you watch the trailer, it's sort of like, we need you, like, you know, a supervillain to fight a villain. And I believe the poster says, you know, when the world needed a hero, they they got a villain. They, they looked for a villain. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, now think about this, uh, The Lone Ranger. Which is a movie like you know Johnny Depp's big line in the trailer is like there there's a time when a good man has to wear a mask, you know, and that could almost be about like Snowden that there's there's something and I'm imagining that sure and that's I mean that's essentially the advice that Anthony Hopkins Sir Anthony Hopkins gives to Antonio Banderas in uh, the Mask of Zorro right like when he says how did you how did you cover all your hate and and anger at the injustice yeah. he says with this. And he holds up the, you know, the mask. Yeah. Although, you know, it would be interesting. What year was that? Because now I want to now I want to think about what that movie was saying versus what the Lone Ranger said. Because here's the thing. I haven't seen the Lone Ranger. I'm not going to see the Lone Ranger. But I'm going to bet. I'm going to go out on a limb and on this podcast say that the Lone Ranger's unit, because, you know, he's a, he's a group of rangers and they go out and they all are killed except for him who barely survives. Uh, they are betrayed. By uh, by their own by the authority, there's some sort of military industrial complex where like some rich guys are paying off some corrupt military unit, and they're like, we need these rangers bumped off because they stumbled upon something, and that it is something where like the system is corrupt, and that's why he needs to sort of go undercover to sort of uncover this. Um, 
you know, and it is it is one of these things where where you know he's he's maybe the Snowden uh, that like there's something that needs to be revealed to the public, and he needs to wear a mask to do it. Sure, it's the plot of G.I. Joe a little bit, right? Like Which one? The the, the new one? Yeah, the new one, right? Like the Joes right. get the Joes get get betrayed. Now of course it's because Cobra has has taken over Right. But, but it might as well be the same thing. That the, the government has also the plot of the eighteen, right? Yeah, right. I, I guess although there's nothing inherently corrupt well I guess there is the, the in a sort of the third act twist. It turns out the general was in on it, but it's not that like the U.S. government has become corrupt. It's certain people are greedy. Those people needed a fall. It's like I don't feel like there's. The, the, I feel like the scope of what GI Joe is saying about the the country is maybe like less damning than than like you know the the big picture GI Joe thing, which is that the president. Is you know, and, and we we talked about how it's it's almost like this this sort of uncomfortable Tea Party type message, which is like the president's an imposter and he's actually going to destroy the United States, and that like somebody needs to and the, and the, the most uncomfortable scene in the new GI Joe movie is the Rock is waiting to shoot the president in the head because he has learned and doesn't bother to tell anybody that the president is evil needs to take him out for the good of the country, um, and it is it is sort of dis- so what. Are you, are you looking up the Mask of Zorro? 1998. 1998. So, like, so what is in the, you know, it's, it's at the end of uh, the Clinton years. It's a period of surplus. It's a period of relative peace. Um, and so, like, what, because I want to, here's the thing, that, that like, when, when we talk about, movies are Rorschach tests, right? And that we can look at the movies from any given year and talk about, you know, how they mean whatever we want them to mean. And so I, I feel that if we're to defend ourselves from that, we need to point out the fact that even though the G.I. Joe, sorry, even though the Lone Ranger and Zora are superficially similar, they're actually plot-wise reflecting different. So I'm, I'm trying to remember what it is the bad guys are trying to do. And if anything, it's, it's, it's very... Um, they're trying to mine gold, aren't they? They're trying yeah. to, like, steal gold from... Buy land cheap that they know has gold on it, and then so it's like a like little bubble. They're speculators. Sure, no, it's not even that. They're like enslaving people and, and like forcing them to work a gold mine. It's also yeah, they're sort of exploiting natural resources. They're you know, um, yeah. This was during the first. This was the run up to the first dot com bubble, wasn't it? Yeah. It, right. And, and there's a very populist turn to Zora. I mean, originally, and certainly that version, where the sort of the aristocracy of Spain, when they were in charge, they're oppressing the common people. And Zorro is, even though he is not of the common people, he is part of the nobility, uh, he fights for the common people. So is it, there's a sense. And I don't think that's going to be part of the Lone Ranger, this idea of the class system, and that the Lone Ranger is from, or, or betrays his own class to fight for, for a democratic ideal. I'm cur- I mean, like, once it comes out, we can we can then overthink it and talk about what it means. But it is, um, I, I, I feel like, you know, although the trailers might look similar to Zorro, that, like, you know, the threat that he is fighting, because that's what we're talking about. They're like, all blockbusters are going to be about one dude is going to have to have a training montage and then use his kung fu or web shooters or, you know, Anthony Hopkins taught swordplay to, to save the universe or Spain um, or, right, whatever it is. Um, but then, like, what we're talking about is, like, what's the threat? What's the, uh, the, the, the institution? Like, you know, what's he fighting against? Is it an external threat? Is it, like, a Cowboys and Aliens style thing where there's something, you know, because, like, you look at the Avengers and everything, and I think it's critical that you could imagine some sort of evil 
homebred supervillain um, group that is trying to take over the United States because the you know they want to take over the United States as opposed to a group of sort of uh, generic aliens who are just attacking you know the the for all my love of the Avengers the threat in the Avengers is very sort of undefined you know that I mean it's literally nebulous yeah. Right, from a nebula. <laughs> like, Loki is an interesting supervillain, and I do, I do sit and ponder the, the seemingly last words of, um, of, of the, as, as he dies, when he says that, that Loki lacks conviction. Uh, and, and what exactly that meant, because I, I do feel that it's an interesting thing to ponder over during your lighter overthinking moments. But it is interesting that, like, as well, certainly... Loki's- Basically, a Joker character, like the the Ledger Joker, like you know, he is the god of chaos. He seeks chaos. He does not have a design. Right. He wants to sort of, uh, as it, uh, he wants to watch the world burn. As yeah. Michael Caine would play. Yeah, the, the 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 threat in the Avengers might as well be a natural disaster. It's this this you know, it's not people. It's not people you could reason with. It's this portal opens and just destruction pours out of it. And we need to deal with that. And, and right, and it's it's portrayed as almost there are definitely echoes of nine eleven when you see those those shots of New York being destroyed by this sort of mindless force. And I think that's in great contrast to Iron Man three, where the threat is a lot more interesting. The threat is greedy people, basically. It's it's people who are willing to um, play on fear and play on on people's insecurities to make money. Right, because the threat is something that is a, a characteristic of human nature, right? Rather than being just this force, this kind of impersonal force that comes from that comes from somewhere else, yeah. right? Uh, though I don't know, Independence Day, um, for which you should buy the overview, dear listener, uh, right? Like has a pretty good impersonal force from somewhere else. It's a pretty good uh, impersonal force movie. Yeah. What do you want us to do? Yeah. It's like, thanks, Data. Yeah, mm-hmm. seriously. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Villains are tough, though. You know, it's a lot easier to have a movie where you're fighting an impersonal... Because even it's like, you know, I think we talked about this when we talked about the, the new G.I. Joe movie, which is horrible, by the way. I feel like, you know, I commented last time we did a podcast that like, we never seem to, to talk about, because it is not in our wheelhouse, whether the movie was good, whether we actually enjoyed watching it, whether we'd recommend it even watch it. We, we overthink it, uh, whether it was a, a masterpiece or whether it was a, a completely soulless piece of schlock. It's, all, it's almost better if it's a completely soulless piece of schlock, because I think a completely soulless piece of schlock reveals... More of a, a dark mirror. Well, yeah, it reveals underlying social forces right. in a way that's more uh, that's more useful to talk about the culture rather than a masterpiece which might which might reveal more about a, a single kind of artistic vision right also we're lazy and to overthink schlock is significantly easier than overthinking masterpiece right because you don't have to cope with with something that is truly new a masterpiece that- might actually deserve commentary <laughs> yeah. Right, like, like there, there is no such thing as overthinking Inception. It's just an appropriate amount of thinking given to Inception. You can overthink GI Joe so easily by just by, by, by thinking about, about it, it for more than ten seconds. Yeah, what does GI stand for? Yeah, it could be anything. We've maybe they'll reveal that in the sequel. But no, what I was saying about GI Joe is that like it's unclear why Cobra Commander is trying to conquer the world. Like, what would make him happy? 
Is it, does he want the ladies? And he feels that by conquering the earth, he will get the ladies. Does he want, <laughs> you know, I mean, is it money? Because he seems to have a lot of, he has a space-based um, gravity weapon. It's a really stupid weapon. But, like, clearly he is not hurting for money, you know? And and so he's he's evil for the sake of being evil. Which As I learned in Karate Kid, basically anyone who self-identifies with a cobra is <laughs> just gonna mess things up. Whether right? whether Kai or Commander, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. Although in, in Kill Bill, what is what is the snake that is uh, that is um, Uma Thurman's snake? It's not a uh, it's not a cobra. Because they all have different snakes. Right? You know, I I hate to say it, but I've never seen Kill Bill. Oh, nor I. Interesting. I'm I'm almost ashamed to admit that on this podcast. But you yeah. know, there are only so many hours in the day, and There's I have not devoted five of them to watching the two parts of Kill Bill. No. And maybe maybe this is a change in the subject. You know, I I've been going back to Iron Man three a few times. I feel like Iron Man three is the most successful movie of this. I'm not going to say best, even though I, I do think it is the the best movie I've seen so far this summer. Um, but I think it's the most successful in that it's, I think the action is good. I think it's got its funny moments, but I also think it has something interesting to say. It has a viewpoint. And I mean, I think that's perhaps like exemplified by the fact that it has a bad guy that has motivations that like they bother to sort of show his origin in a, in a way and whether or not the, and, and certainly we discussed at the time that it is problematic. Uh, some of the ways that they make, they make it seem like, like, people that are disabled are almost inherently evil or that like have this sort of seed of evil that like once they're sort of wounded they're corrupted um and there's this almost one-to-one association that like anybody who has been um maimed in war can be easily convinced to sort of turn against their own government and and help to kill the president you know it's a problem you know i was actually thinking about that and we i mean at the risk of kind of wading into the identity politics stuff that i've been trying to steer us away from a little bit because we've, we've gone pretty deep in that, uh, in recent months and, and it might be time to talk about some other things, but, um, you know, at the risk of wading into that, I'll say like, it's, it's not the actual disabled people themselves, right. Who are, who are sort of pushing for this though. I guess they're, 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 they're portrayed as being susceptible to, or that is their only possible motivation. For being evil, like all the all the the people that have the extremist treatments. Yeah, but it's um, don't you once you don't you get super angry once you have extremists, right? And like, do you, guy? Pierce, it, so you're saying that extremists makes you evil? It's not that you already hated the government because they sent you to Iraq and they didn't get you a new arm. I sort of saw it as actually like a drug addiction kind of thing, right? That, like you know, that, you needed even that. Cool. Is that like you're you're willing to do anything, including assassinating the president? Uh, and killing innocent people in order to get more of these drugs. In order to get more of these drugs. <clears throat> Just like when the CIA, you know, introduced crack into the inner cities, right, in order to sort of control the populace. It's a, it's a thing. So it's really, I mean, the people who are the sort of ableist, who have this sort of anti-disability prejudice, are the, are the people who are exploiting the... Uh, exploiting the disabled for their kind of craven political ends... Rather than, you know, right, it's the vice president. It's not his daughter in the wheelchair who's the problem, right? Daughter is fine. It's vice president's sort of underlying assumptions about his daughter's disability that, uh, you know, that uh, lead to the, to the evil there. 
It was. I mean, the 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 shocking thing to me about that one was just a, the the message at the end seemed to me to be entirely like we should not have veterans. Instead, all drones all the time, flying robots that can kill people without being wounded, and then becoming subject to evil medical defense contractors. Um, which I found out this week that there is a drone caucus in the House of Representatives, a group of people who get together specifically the purpose of talking about drones in the United States House but, of like Representatives. Like in, in a way, talking about how much they hate them or, or nope. just like looking at pictures of things that drones blew up. Pro-drone. Like, that's a thing that's happening. And it's, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's, it's a discussion that's being had at the highest levels of government and the movie seemed to come down yeah. like strongly on one side. Who's the ranking, like, who's the ranking member of the drone caucus, you know? I like to think it's Boehner, but, <laughs> uh, but like, okay, so let's, I mean, on let's think about Iron Man 3. Uh, in fact, let's overthink about it, right? Like, cause what happens after the drone war, um, begun this drone war has, <laughs> Uh, like what happens? Uh, no. <laughs> what happens after the drone war is that Tony Stark blows up all the drones, right? Oh right. yeah, but at this point, the government has had like the the Iron Patriot or whatever the other one is. Like they have that yeah. technology at this point. Right. He blows up all the drones, but it's sort of at that point, it's more of a personal statement. It's more of something about like he doesn't need the technology and he can just be Tony Stark. And, and get the thing out of his chest. But it is it is interesting. I mean, the drones recur this summer, right? Because there was that. Then there was Star Trek Into Darkness. Sure. Which, which is very explicitly about, like, we're going to kill this guy with a drone. And then Kirk thinks about it, and he's like, we're not going to kill the guy with a drone because we're better than that. Well, yeah, by launching a bunch of, like, advanced missiles, which I guess are drones, but they're also missiles, right? Like, uh... I don't know, like, you know, yeah. so that, like, I'm not sure it's drones exactly, but also sort of sitting and lobbing, sitting and lobbing uh, warheads into, you know, far off places from, you know, behind the, the security of your own borders. I've always wondered in Star Trek why the transporter is not the only weapon they use. Right. Just, like, transport pieces of the hull into deep space. <laughs> oh, sure. Can't you, like, transport the grenade? Can't you, like, transport a grenade? Anywhere you want, right? Almost like, certainly. Because there's no, like, there's no... There's Shields, no, Matt. <laughs> Shields. There's no consensual transportation, right? Like, it's not like the receiving place. You transport someone, <laughs> you know? You transport someone somewhere, and the, the receiving location has no say in the matter. <laughs> I, I can't say anything about that. <laughs> It's interesting, you know, trying to trying to look for patterns in movies. I'm just looking at a list of releases. Uh, the internship, a, a comedy about how these people who have been in the workforce for a while suddenly the the economic structure, right, the economic system sort of collapsing around them, and they're forced to sort of desperately compete uh, for these, this tech job that they're sort of ill suited for. So it's about people sort of scrambling to escape economic Armageddon. Uh, then and yet, it being those two characters, almost certainly those two everymen end up like saving Google and the world, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't see it, but I Not do wonder it. if there's something where it's like because you guys aren't nerds, because you guys have this real world old economy experience, you were able to do something 
that the people who just grew up with, with web experience didn't. Right, so and that's the meta plot of all of these movies, which is that, like, the old skills, the old-fashioned skills are still important, right? Right. Most notably, I think Armageddon is the big one, where it's like, we have a bunch of NASA eggheads, but what we really need is these guys, these old-school guys who are on this uh, oil rig and have this old-fashioned elbow grease and are going to blue-collar workers. Uh, gonna, not only elbow grease, but also, like, a great deal of, like, machismo and charisma, right? Yeah. That, like, that movie had very interesting things to say about class, of course, because it was about this professional class of, of very educated saviors, uh, would-be saviors of the world, who, who don't have it because it's, it's the sort of on-the-job on the training that you get from, like, living in an oil rig. And I think very notably outside the United States... Sure. Um, it's, it's these people who have literally left the United, these expats who need to be brought back to the United States to redeem it from it's sort of like, you know, we've gotten too soft and we've gotten too educated. But what I wanted to say about about Iron Man was that there is there is like this strain of in in cowboy stuff that's like only this once. Right. OK, we'll use the drones, but only this once. Yeah. And it's OK. It's OK. Only this once. And it's not. You know, it, it belongs to the world of fantasy, right? It belongs to the world of storytelling and of sort of extraordinary existential threat, right? And not to the world of like, uh, I don't know, we're going to well drink because I'm about to mention The Wire, right? Like, it's not to, not to the world of like, we need to build uh, a, a sustainable mechanism for balancing, for holding in tension several kinds of forces, you know, uh, that are kind of productively in tension with one another, uh, yeah. that, that can, you know, a system of checks and balances that, yeah. that will, uh, be robust and that will yeah. be, that will withstand, you know, a lot of different circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, we're going to do the extraordinary thing. This is not, you know, don't do what I'm doing now. Uh, do as I say, don't like <laughs> my mom's big one growing up was always like, don't open the package of potato chips with your teeth, but I'm going to do it just this once because I'm a grown up and I know how. Right. And like uh, there, I, I feel like the, the that's the what's going on in, in Iron Man three. You know, we're going to we're going to have a drone war just this once. Uh, but it's not yeah. this is not good policy. But right, clearly the drones could come back, right? If there's an Iron Man 4 or an Avengers, right, he doesn't have any suits at the end of Iron Man 3, but he's not fooling anybody. The suits will, like, you can't unring that bell. You can't shove everything back in Pandora's right, box. Right, you can't, you and, can't, once you've let that genie out of the bottle to spoon him. especially once you successful him. it is. I mean, I feel like you're, you're, you're almost, if, if you're not, you should be explicitly thinking about uh, the Dark Knight in the eavesdropping machine. Right. Where he builds us and he's like, we're going to spy on everybody because we need to find the Joker. And Morgan Freeman's like, all right, I'll do it just this once, but we're going to destroy it right afterwards. And they do, but they, you know, once, once you've taken the technological step of inventing the damn thing, you know, it stays invented whether or not you like, you know, you blow up a few motherboards. And we're talking, we're back to talking about the NSA. Well, maybe this is a good time to leave our conversation here for the week. Uh, if you would like to join the conversation, uh, please, a bit, you can play, um, uh, keep, keep it PG-13, guys, in the comment threads, please. Which is not easy to do, by the way. <laughs> but uh, if you'd like to play Mary Spoon Punch in the Face with Disney characters, uh, you're welcome to do that. Or uh, with National Security Agency. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I think you marry the FBI. No. They spy on you a lot. The FBI? Yeah, they have a mandate Who to spy on you. doesn't spy on you a lot? Well, they all spy on you, but the FBI has a mandate yeah. to do so. Like, the Department of Homeland Security sounds like it would be good to marry, because it's got, like, home right in there. Yeah, and Jenna oh, DiPolitano no, is nice. I guess, but they're not. Mm-hmm. 
There's no right answer to that question. <laughs> um, and you punch the FDA? The, yeah. Because they're, they're nah. going to make sure that your milk is always... I don't know. Oh, uh, any federal agency? We can go with any federal agency? Why? Because well, I want to marry the Department of Housing and Urban Development because they'll put a roof over my head. That's a good point. It'll be like a, the cheapest roof that money you can spoon buy. Health and Human Services. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're going to provide me with some human services. And they're healthy. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, you can email podcast at overthinkingit.com. Uh, where the NSA screeners will be happy to look over your emails. You can call, call, or text. I actually just downloaded a batch of voicemails off of the uh, phone line at 203-285-6401. Or you can join the conversation about uh, institutions failing, uh, about a lone hero, uh, uh, about many years ago a prophecy uh, predicted, Um you can join that conversation on the show notes for this episode. We will be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Can we turn the air conditioning back on now? Please, capitalist master, please turn the air on. In a time of humidity, <laughs> only one man can turn the air conditioning on to nine, which is the second highest setting possible. Matt Rather is the air conditioner op- Wait, I was going to call it the air conditioner, but he's like the air conditioner conditioner. We're workshopping. We're workshopping. Do you hear that? That's the noise you could have had during the whole podcast. Yeah, enjoy it. Bzzz.